Good morning, Redeemer. Well, I've got a question for you as we turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 4, verse 22 is where we're going to start. As you turn there, the question is, you know, we've, we've heard all of these words in our songs today about being rescued, about being saved. Well, my question is, why as a culture, especially Western culture, America, Europe, why are we not more afraid? Why are we not absolutely terrified? We hear words like this in the Christian faith about being saved from what? Well, from wrath. But it seems that most people are kind of sleepy in our culture. We don't think about being in danger. There's probably a lot of reasons for this. Maybe the fact that we have some prosperity, so we don't see as much of the bad stuff in everyday life. Uh, maybe the fact that we never actually see the food that we kill. <laughs> Most of the time, we don't kill it ourselves. So uh, there's probably a lot of reasons for this. We don't see a lot of the, the bad stuff that goes around us. However, we're different from most. Pagan cultures throughout history, even pagan cultures knew that there was something wrong. I mean, you see people sacrificing to gods of the volcano because they're afraid of what might come. They know there's dangers all around them. There's, there's the lava that might flow. There's the thunder and the lightning that might strike. There's the earth that shakes, hurricanes, tornadoes. Danger is all around us. It's as if God has built the world in such a way that we know that there is something wrong if we just open our eyes. It seems that there is something horrible all around us. And in the West, we seem to be asleep to it. We're asleep in the lair of a powerful and wrathful God. So I want to make sure that we understand the need for this rescue that we're going to talk about in Romans 4.22 through 5.1. We have to know our need for it before we move forward to see it. Uh, when we go to talk to Mormons every summer, and actually we're going to go on a trip just this coming Wednesday, actually, is when we leave for Utah to talk to many Mormons who believe that they can more or less work their way to God's grace and God's favor. And they're pretty happy with that. What I can do is good enough. Another kind of sleepy ideology doesn't understand the wrath that is coming. Well, last year I got an opportunity to talk to a stake president in the Mormon church, and there was another Christian gentleman over with me, and as we were talking with this guy, he was telling us, how, oh, I can, I can do it on my own. I've, I've, I'm a pretty good guy. You know, God's going to be okay. There's nothing really to worry about. And that God's going to be okay with it is pretty much what we hear from everybody around us. God's just going to be okay. He's, he's, eh, he doesn't really care. Well, then he went on to tell us, as he was getting a little bit more angry, that we were saying, no, you have to come to God in this way and this way alone. By, by this way, I mean the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we, when we told him this, he said, well, I have this great feeling of peace with God. Are you going to tell me that I don't have peace with God? And my, my friend from another church that was there sharing with me, pipes in and says, oh no, we don't want to tell you you don't have peace with God. You know what you feel? That's, that's great. But that's not the right answer. The Bible tells us that there's only one way that we can have peace. There's only one way to peace with God. Otherwise, we are at war. A dreadful war. A war that we could never win. God is holy. He's just. He will not let sin go unpunished. He will not let sin just fade into the background, kind of like my voice did just a moment ago. Well, because of this, we do need to have that, that understanding, because even Isaiah said that when people say, peace, peace, destruction will come on them suddenly. We have to understand. From, I want to read you something to help you with this understanding. It's the Requiem Mass that dates from the 13th century. This was uh, contemporary Christian music from about 700 years ago. Uh, you don't hear much like this on contemporary Christian radio now. Maybe it'd be good to have a song like this sprinkled in occasionally to remind us what we're saved from. But it reads, The day of wrath, that day, will dissolve the world in ashes 
as foretold by David and the Sibyl. How much tremor there will be when the judge will come investigating everything strictly. Death and nature will marvel when the creature arises to respond to the judge. My prayers are not worthy. However, thou, good Lord, do good, lest I am burned up by eternal fire. Once the cursed have been rebuked, sentenced to acrid flames, call thou me with the blessed. This reflects several biblical texts. Zephaniah 1, 15 through 16 sounds much like this. It says, a day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. This is what is coming for us if we do not have salvation in Christ. One day we will be held to account by a judge that is more holy than we can imagine for sin that we wink at every day. And it will be a horrible day for those of us who are not covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, who do not have an atonement. Well, we're entering into Holy Week, and this is a time to celebrate the fact that Christ, on well, as we celebrated on Thursday of this week, on Thursday over 2,000 years ago, he went to the cross. He was arrested in Gethsemane on Thursday night, suffered on the cross all through the day on Friday, was taken down just before evening, was placed in a tomb. But then he rose again on Sunday morning. Our salvation is secure. He defeated the death that we all deserve. And now, by trusting him, we can be set free. Let's read Romans 4, 22 through 5, 1. If you'll stand with me to read God's holy word. That is why his faith, this is speaking of Abraham, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You may be seated. What we're going to do is we're going to first look at the faith of Abraham. That's his faith that you see in Romans 4.22. Practically all of Romans chapter 4 is about Abraham and his faith and what it meant for him. So we're going to look at the faith of Abraham as our model for our faith. Second, as we move forward from there, we're going to look at the mechanics of how God did this the justification that he gives. How does he count it righteousness to us who are sinners? And then finally, we're going to look at what all of this means for us. Peace. Peace with God. What does that mean? What does that look like? How does that play out in day-to-day -day life and for all eternity? So let's start with the faith of Abraham, the model for saving faith. As Romans 4.22 says, uh, it says, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteous. Well, his. Who is he? Abraham. We meet him in, in Genesis chapter 12, about 2,100 years before Christ, and he's in the land of Ur. What happens to Abraham? Well, he's sitting in this very flat land uh, south of uh, Babylon, south of Iraq, before you get to the Persian Gulf. And he's way over here in the desert. There's a river nearby, the Euphrates. But he's comfortable. He's found a beautiful wife there. He has uh, generations of family. And this is all he has known all his life. But God calls and speaks to Abraham and says, get up and go to a land I will show you. And so Abraham follows the Euphrates River all the way around 
to the land that we would know as Israel. And after making this enormous journey, trusting that this God who has promised to bless him would actually do what he said, he gets there, he accumulates wealth, and then eventually he realizes that this promise that God is making requires that he has a son because he says, God says, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the heavens. God even takes Abraham out. I love this little personal touch in Genesis 15. Takes Abraham out and points to the stars and says, see those? See how many there are? That's how many your descendants will be. And then we get to this wonderful place in Genesis 15, 6, where Abraham believed God. He believed that God would actually give him these descendants, though he was 100 years old. His body was dead. His wife's womb was dead at 100 years old. How are they going to have kids? He believed the God who would bring life out of dead wombs. He believed that God could do it. And his faith in Genesis 15, 6 was counted to him as righteousness. Counted to him as righteousness. And we'll talk more about that in a second, but I want to really key in on this faith. Abraham believed this God, he, he had trust in him. Not only did he believe that this God was powerful enough to bring life from death, but he believed that this God was trustworthy enough to actually follow through with what he said he would do. Also, Abraham knew that there was no way he could do by himself, no way Sarah could help him out to actually accomplish what God had called him to do. There's no way. Abraham was entirely incapable of making himself and Sarah at 100 years old suddenly bring forth a baby boy. Completely incapable. So what did he do? Well, Sarah's womb was definitely dead. He wavered in his faith a little bit, though, Genesis, uh, though our chapter here is going to say something different. But at, at a moment, he did waver in his faith to the degree that he said, well, maybe I need to help God out with this promise. And he goes and he sleeps with Hagar, who is Sarah's handmaiden. And Sarah says, yeah, sleep with her because we got to have descendants. And obviously my womb is dead, so there's no way. And maybe this will work. But that was not the child of promise. That was Ishmael, and he was not the child of promise. Well, who would be the child of promise was Isaac. And he would be born. God would make it happen. Even though Abraham had slight falterings on occasion, God would make it happen. If you'll look at me for, with me for a second at Genesis, uh, I mean Genesis, Romans 4, 19 through 20. Let's look at this. It says, Abraham did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body. He did not weaken in faith. I want you to remember that, which was as good as dead since he was about a, a hundred years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. No unbelief made him waver. Well, what, what about all of these things? What about him taking Hagar and trying to have a child with her? What, what about the fact that he goes and he basically lies about his wife, doesn't trust God to keep him and his wife safe when they, they sojourn to Egypt? What, what about all of these times when Abraham seems to have definitely wavered? Well, the thing about Abraham's faith is when it says here, he did not waver in his faith, were helped by the Greek. This is an aorist verb. The answer to this question is that when God says he did not waver, he's speaking of the whole of Abraham's life, the whole of his faith journey. What his life was characterized in some. In other words, God is saying Abraham as a whole is a man of unwavering faith. This is a comfort to me. Because if we're looking at Abraham as a model for the faith that justifies, that saves us from this horrible wrath that is coming, it's helpful to me to know that, yes, we need to be characterized by an unwavering faith as we look at the whole journey of our lives. As people speak about us at our funerals and they ask the question, was this man or was this woman a woman of faith or not? They will say, yes, this man was definitely a man of faith. We need to be characterized by being a people of faith if we want to escape the wrath to come. But even Abraham had moments where there was a little bit of a falter, and yet he got right back up and continued growing in his faith. 
He even got to the point where he sacrificed or was willing to sacrifice his only son at God's word, the son that he expected to have descendants from. So what characterized Abraham? Great, amazing faith. Not faith in himself, but faith in God. Faith that God could bring life from the dead, from a dead womb, or even from a dead son who he was called to sacrifice. He knew God was able to do the impossible. He stopped depending on self and started depending on God. Stopped glorying in self and started glorying in God. And this is the essence of faith. Why is it that faith is what is counted to us as righteousness? It's because this is the heart of our relationship with God. We lose ourselves and we find God. We know that we are unable, but he is completely capable of everything, even life from death. So what about you? What will people say of your life when you go to that funeral uh, and you happen to be dead at it? (laughs) (laughs) What will the people around you say? Will they say, yeah, that was a man of faith. Will they characterize you? Will that be their primary thought about you? Not primarily that, oh yeah, he was a great mechanic. Or, oh yeah, he was an awesome football player. Uh, Or what will be the primary characteristic they attribute to you? Well, with Abraham, our model, what could be primarily attributed to Abraham is he was a man of unwavering faith as you look at the whole picture of his life. And so for us as well, I pray that we will be people of unwavering faith. And I pray that today will strengthen you in the journey to become stronger and stronger in your faith. Because it is only faith in this God and giving up in ourselves that will rescue us on that day. So we've looked at Abraham's faith as the model. Now let's look at the mechanics of our salvation. So, you know, some people uh, like to just get in a car and drive along and not want, they don't want to know anything about what's going on under the hood. They don't know how, want to know how the, the, the little fluid squirts on your windshield when it gets dirty. They, they don't want to know any of this stuff. And they're just happy to ride along. Well, that's okay. Uh, actually, as far as cars go, I'm like that too. But as far as salvation goes, in this particular section of scripture, Paul is popping the hood. And he's allowing us to look under the hood to see what's actually going on. How does this work? What does it mean for us that faith is counted to us as righteousness? What does that mean? So let's pop the hood and look. Let's read again Romans 4, 23 through 25. It says, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. It was counted to him as righteousness. This was written for our sake, not just for Abraham, but also for our sake. How was Abraham saved? The same way that we will be saved, the same way anybody will be saved. It is only by this faith in the God who is able to bring life from death It is only this kind of faith that will save us. Counted as righteous is mentioned three times in in three verses. And then it culminates in 25 when we bring up the concept of justification. Justification, big words in the Bible. We use them all the time. We rarely know what they mean. So uh, let's first of all start with what does justification mean? Well, there's this great little phrase that you'll hear occasionally. It's, it's a great starter piece for understanding justification. It says, well, if you're justified, then it's as if, or just as if I'd never sinned. Justified, just as if I'd never sinned. Uh, nice little phrase. But that's part of the story. It's not the whole story. So I wanna, we're going to look deeper at what justification really means for us. What does God do for us in the cross and resurrection? It's two parts. First, you see that he was delivered up for our trespasses. So he was put on the cross, first of all, for our trespasses, to take them away. 
So all of the sin, all of the evil that we have done, are doing, or ever will do, every evil thought and intention of our hearts, every mindless, horrible act of evil that we commit, everything that we will ever do through faith is placed on Christ's cross and it's taken away. Another word for that is expiation. It's taken away, just in case you're keeping track of theological vocabulary. Delivered up for our trespasses. That's part one. Our sin is taken away. And then we have in verse 25, raised for our justification and also the, the idea of counting to us as righteousness. This is the idea of imputation. So justification is not only taking it away, but taking away our evil, but also counting to us God's very own righteousness. Romans 1.17 says that... Uh, hold on, I've got it written down. <laughs> Romans 1.17 says that, For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So the righteousness of God is revealed. This righteousness is what is imputed to us, what is counted to us. What God says, I now see that you have faith, and so I'm going to basically calculate all of my infinite righteousness, and I'm going to calculate it into your account. It's yours. So sins are wiped away. Righteousness is given. These are the two primary parts of justification. Primarily, justification means that we are declared righteous. We are made just. We are made right before God. So let's first look at part one. I want to look at that part. And I want to illustrate this uh, with a canvas that I want you to imagine is over here. Think of an easel and a canvas ready to have a painting placed on it by someone who can actually do art, not me. And this canvas is a picture of our soul. And on it is written blasphemies against God, arrogance and pride and self-dependence, just pornographies and adulteries and all sorts of evil. Everything that is in the human heart is placed on that canvas of our soul. And it's ugly. It's disgusting. And when God looks at it, without something to come between his justice and that canvas, there is nothing but the flames of hell, his punishment for sin. He cannot stand sin. He is so holy, he cannot even look at it. So this horribly stained canvas that I want you to picture in front of you, what Christ does when he goes to the cross and is handed over for our justification is he erases it. He wipes it clean. There is nothing there. It is completely free of stain. So are our souls. What we see in Christ is a picture of our sin, a picture of our ugly, disgusting, putrid sin. And it's punished in a horrible manner on that cross. The horrors of what God would do to us are pictured in what God has done to Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. So he's been punished for it, and so he's able to get rid of it. How does that work? Sin has to be punished could be punished in me, but instead God punished it in Jesus. And so now my slate is clean. My canvas is fresh, has nothing on it. So what does that mean to me? Well, if that canvas is completely clean, then God has nothing against me. And that's excellent. But just having a clean slate is not the totality of our salvation in Christ. Because then, you know, it would seem that if you want God to truly love you, you might try to go back to that canvas again and again and, and try to paint something for him to love you for. Trying to do good things. It's like, oh, look, look at what I did, God. Put it on there on that canvas. Say, look, look at my good works. Look at how well I'm doing. You've got to love me more now. Please love me more. See how, how pretty I'm making my picture? Please. And this would be diametrically opposed to the faith that we see in Abraham. Abraham's faith completely gives up on self and completely trusts in God. Self is gone. God is all he glories in. But if we're trying to paint our own works onto that blank slate, then we've started trusting in ourselves again. And this is where many of us as Christians find ourselves in a day-to-day -day experience. 
We say, yeah, I'm forgiven, but really, is that, does that mean that I don't have to prove myself somehow? I've got to prove myself in some way so that God will finally love me more. And many of us just have this blank, blank canvas theology, and it's not enough. Though if that's all God did for us, wow, what a salvation still. I want to remind you of something that they do at the Seder every year in traditional Seder celebrations. Uh, a Seder is a Passover feast that is celebrated uh, on the Passover, perhaps Good Friday. Uh, and they say, have this phrase, dayenu, which means it would have been sufficient. And they say, uh, they have 15 stanzas for dayenu, as they talk about how God saved them out of Egypt. One of those is, if he had brought us out of Egypt and not carried out judgments against them, dayenu, it would have been sufficient. If God had only saved us from Egypt, but he didn't actually punish them for what they've done to us, it would have been totally sufficient. It would have been enough. If God had split the sea for us, but not taken us through on dry land, dayenu, it would have been sufficient. If he had just opened it up, but still it was really hard going and we had to find our own way through, God would have done more than enough on his part. It would have been more than sufficient for him to do that. He would have been more than holy and gracious and merciful and just. It would have been an amazing thing for God to gift us with. But that's not all he did. So likewise, on this other side of the cross and resurrection, we can say if he had taken away our sins, but not counted to us the very righteousness of Christ. Dayenu. It would have been sufficient. God would have done immeasurably more than we could have ever expected or imagined for him to do to horrible, evil villains like you and I. But he did do more. Our war with God is killed on the cross. But our relationship is not left in a neutral, dead relationship with God. Through the resurrection, our relationship with God is overflowing with life and love. Not neutral, but in full overdrive. So we don't just have a blank canvas anymore. God has taken this blank canvas and he has written on it his righteousness. He has counted to our blank canvas of a soul, righteousness of God. So he has painted a beautiful, holy picture and covered our soul with the very picture of God's own righteousness. So now, when we look at God and he looks at us, he doesn't only see us as, well, at least they're not sinning. He sees us as having the same amount of merit that Jesus Christ himself has. The one who bore the sin of the world went to the cross and suffered in the place of sinners, the innocent in the place of the guilty. And when we see him doing that, and we see the righteousness that he never sinned, he never had an evil thought, he was perfectly focused on God throughout his life, as we see that much merit, the Holy Son of God, we see that that's what God sees when God assesses how much he loves us. We are accepted with the perfect love of God the Father towards God the Son. If God turns you away and you have the faith of Abraham towards God, then God would have to turn his own son away because he will not break his promises. He has done it and he has made you a beautiful portrait in his sight. So you're free. Not only do you not have to try and, and paint your own pretty pictures to make God like you more, God loves you with an everlasting love. You who once were dead in your sins and trespasses, there's an eternal life from the dead love for you as God the Father loves God the Son. You are accepted, beloved, accepted perfectly. There's nothing that can turn his hand against you. Now, 
When we're justified like this, does that mean that we don't sin? No. Our everyday lives still, even though the portrait of Christ's holiness is painted over our souls, we still sin. We still have those horrible thoughts that come to us. We get angry. We, uh, we sometimes sin in pretty harsh ways, even as Christians. But it's as if God has clothed us in robes of righteousness. A picture from Isaiah 61.10. He's clothed us in these robes of righteousness so that every time he looks on us, he sees this great righteousness and he declares us just and he says, I accept you the same way I accept my son back from the dead. I accept you. But what does this mean for when we sin? It just means that we haven't quite grown into the robes that he's given us. We have some growing to do. My son has one of my shirts, and every time he puts it on to go to bed, he trips over it. He, he, it's so long for him that he, he, he loves to wear it. We try to talk him out of it, but, but he puts it on, and it kind of trails behind him about two feet everywhere he goes. And, uh, but I long to see my son grow up in such a way that he will fill out that shirt, hopefully better than I do. And I think God has the same view of us. He has given us robes of righteousness, and he loves us, and he accepts us in those, because of those robes of righteousness. But he is absolutely intent on growing us up into the image of his son, to fill out those robes of righteousness so that we look like the very image of Jesus Christ, the son of God. And so he's growing us all through this life, and then one day when we see him face to face, we will be like him. There will be nothing more for us to stumble upon. Faith will be made perfect, righteousness complete, and we will see God face to face, and we will never sin again, but we will be completely and utterly righteous before God and happy in Christ forever. So what does the resurrection have to do with this? The resurrection is where he declared us righteous. Uh, one more story about my kids, and I promise I'll stop. Uh, the other day we were having Bible time in the morning, and Sunday was asking uh, our kids, so wh what do you think Easter's really about? And, well, we had the, well, Jesus, you know, the obvious answer to every biblical question, Jesus. And then afterwards, uh, she said, well, you know, it's, it is about Jesus, but it's something more, something specific about Jesus. And my son says, oh, th th he, he died. He went to the cross. And, well, well, yes, he did go to the cross, but then on Sunday, on Easter Sunday, something special happened. What was it? And then one of my daughters says, uh, he rose from the dead. And somebody said, yes, that's right. And then my other daughter says, like a zombie. <laughs> it's like, well, no, not, not exactly. Not exactly. You see, the cross of Christ he died, but when he raised, he was not like a zombie. He had fullness of life. The portrait of Christ being raised from the dead is a portrait of the life that we will have, and we do not have the life of zombies, either now or when we get to that day. A zombie is just barely alive, though dead. I, I don't even know how to define that. I, I don't read enough sci-fi, I guess. But uh, listen to this statement. Christ's perfect state in the resurrection is our perfect status before God now and will be our actual state when we see God on that day and forevermore. Christ's perfect state in resurrection is our perfect status before God now and will be our actual state when we see God on that day and forevermore. Christ what was his state when he rose from the dead? Not barely alive, but full of eternal life that could never be conquered again. The state of Christ in resurrection is so beautiful, magnificent, acceptable before God, holy, righteous, eternal. And that's our status before God when we pray to him, when we approach him. He sees us as the beloved, resurrected son and his relationship with Christ will never change, and his relationship with us will never change. We will always be perfectly accepted in Christ.
And then one day, when we see him face to face, it will be our actual state. The sin and suffering that destroys our hearts, takes us away from the God who is life, will be done away with, and we will know nothing but total peace and joy forevermore. So finally, what does justification by faith mean for us? Okay, seen Abraham's faith as our model. We've looked under the hood and seen how Christ takes away our sin on the cross and declares us righteous with the very righteousness of God in the resurrection. Now, what does all that mean for us? It means, in Romans 5.1, peace with God. The war is totally, perfectly over. Let's read Romans 5.1. Let's go ahead and read Romans 5.1 and 2. It's good stuff. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. I want to read on. There's so many blessings that come with this. Peace is so amazing. And chapter 5 lays out the blessings of peace. I encourage you to read that. But if we are such horrible sinners deserving of such eternal punishment, why are we not afraid? Though we have plenty to be afraid of? Well, if we believe like Abraham in a God who can bring life from the dead, even life to our own dead souls, then we have no reason to be afraid. Perfect love drives out fear. There is no fear left for the person who believes, as Abraham does, and is credited to him as righteousness. We have a glorious hope. This is not just a cessation of war. Two countries often go to war, they battle with each other for a while, and they finally say, okay, it's, it's peace treaty, Let's, we're done. But that doesn't mean that that's the kind of peace that we have with God, because it's more with God. He makes us his ally. He trains, trains us as soldiers in his army. We are on his side. He is on our side. We trust him. He uses us. He molds us. He, he's our life. He's everything we'll ever need. We are allies of God now. He's causing us to grow into those clothes of righteousness. And all of this in the context of peace. Shalom, the Hebrew for peace, which this is referring back to. Shalom is an idea of complete wholeness. Absolutely, completely perfected in every way so that you have no lack. You don't need anything. You have no sorrows, no, no woes. You have this peace that absolutely fills you from top to bottom. You're made whole, well, complete. We have this shalom with God. What does this peace mean to us if we have faith like Abraham did? Well, first, I think that this peace would be absolutely evident in our prayer lives. If we are at peace with God like this, how can we not run to the God who loves us to death? How can we not run to the God who loves us back to life again and forevermore? How can we not go to him, believers? Prayer lives, wow. Our, the, the, the way we pray and the depth of intimacy we feel with God reflects how much we understand what Christ has done for us. If we go to him and we feel like we've got to, to pray this rote prayer because we're expected to pray and we're going dutifully and we say, God, thank you for this day. You say all the normal phrases. We're just trying to paint a picture for ourselves. Say, hey, God, look, I, I, I'm, I'm doing pretty good, right? You've got to accept me now and, and say that I'm okay and maybe not send me to the deepest, darkest Africa on mission. You know, I, we're thinking that we're still at war. We have this warlike mentality. We want to appease God so he's going to be okay with us and he's going to make our lives better somehow. But the problem is, that won't make our lives better. It won't. We can't 
say, God, accept me for what I can offer you and expect that to be accepted because only faith is accepted. Romans 14, 23, everything that does not come from faith is sin. So as soon as we say, look at my works in prayer, or I feel like I have to go to prayer because if I don't, God will be on me and my accountability group will yell at me. That's not the right motivation. The right motivation is I'm loved. He loves me and I don't deserve it. And I want to be near him. He is the universe's master. And he has chosen me to walk with him in love and perfect peace. How can I not want to just rest in his presence? I want to carry the scent of my God with me to work, to play, to school, to my friendships, into my family. I want him to just walk with me everywhere. This God who loves me. I never want him to, to go out of my mind or out of my heart. I want to know the presence of this love. The love that died for me and rose again. And has secured a place for me forever that I will never be turned away. We can be secure. We don't have to earn his favor. We enjoy his favor. And as we enjoy his favor, we are changed. We want to be more like him. We want to do his works after him. This also avoids this deadly idea of legalism. Legalism is thinking that you will be accepted because you're keeping some number of laws. You're, you're, you have a certain morality. Legalists always look for loopholes. Legalists are always looking for just what they have to do to get by. However, lovers, people who actually love God, going to chase after him, not looking for the minimum requirement to get by, but looking for how they can absolutely relish life in God, how they can make the most of it, how they can be absolutely dedicated in every moment of every day to following after the God who has died and risen again, the God of the universe who is holy and the skies speak of his handiwork. This God becomes our life. We love him and we want to do the things he does, be with him and near him forever and in everything to complete his mission, to speak of him to everyone we meet. Legalism says, oh, man, I've got so much to do. I can't believe God requires this much of me. I just can't, ah, the standard is too much. I can't bear up under it. Legalists get burned out. And sometimes legalism creeps into Christian hearts. We tend to falter just like Abraham did. And we need to fight it. Because as soon as you start trying to make yourself look good before God and men, is the moment you start burning yourself out and you start falling away from your love for God. You will feel so weary trying to bear the weight yourself. But you will feel so energized when you understand what Christ has done for you and he will bring you closer and closer to himself and he will change your life. The weariness is gone. His, his burden is easy. Yoke yourself to him. Second, second application, if we have peace with God, then number one, we have prayer and we're, we avoid legalism. Second, peace with God means peace with God's sovereignty in this world. No matter what difficulties may come into our lives, no matter what blessings, we have peace with God. We're basically at peace with God's world. I have an illustration that God gave me this morning on my way to church. So uh, be prepared. Uh, as I was driving up here, I, I wasn't wearing this shirt. When I'm preaching, I never wear the same shirt that I'm going to preach in as I drive 35 minutes from Burleson. So what I do is I, I wear a shirt that I can basically throw away if I want to. And I do that because I'm a professional wrinkler. I don't know why it is, but I guess it's my body heat. I don't know. But I put on a shirt, and five minutes later, it's completely full of wrinkles. So, uh, especially with kids. But as I was driving to church, I got all the way up here, and then I realized I didn't have that shirt. I didn't bring this shirt with me. 35 minutes, and I was up here at midnight last night trying to prepare, and I had gotten up, it was early this morning. And I was trying to get a few things polished off. And I thought, oh my goodness, I don't have a shirt. I've got to turn around and drive 35 minutes 
back to Burleson, and then 35 minutes back up here. I'm gonna spend two hours driving this morning, over two hours, plus stops. Ah, oh, God, why are you punishing me? Oh my goodness, I'm preaching about this. God's not punishing me. So basically, I think that God put me through that simply so he could really press into my heart the meaning of this sermon that I'm supposed to be preaching. As I turned around and I went back and I realized, I can't believe I was, th- I, I should believe it, but I, why in the world did I think that God was trying to punish me? He's taken it all away. I've, I've been working on this sermon for hours this week. He's taken it all away. He loves me and accepts me perfectly. Why would I ever think he's punishing me for something? Well, as I drove back, there was this beautiful portrait in the clouds going back west. I mean, there huge cloud banks and a great ball of light and then rays spreading out like fans on one level and then another level behind that and another level behind that. And it was this beautiful three-dimensional portrait of just beauty, the glory of God. And I was driving back just thinking, oh, when we suffer and we think that the world has all gone wrong, God is growing us into robes of righteousness. He's showing us more of himself through every trial he puts us through. He's teaching us how to trust him more and to lean on him more and to love him more in everything that he puts us through. What's on the other side of our sufferings? If we are God's called and chosen children who trust in him with the faith of Abraham, on the other side of our sufferings, the glory of God. We will know him more. We'll be more amazed by the art of who he is. And our souls will be made more and more whole as we grow into the robes of righteousness that he has placed upon us. So if we have peace with God, we don't have to think at every turn, oh my goodness, the engine line came on. Oh my goodness, my tire's gone. Oh my goodness, I can't, what did he say about me? We don't have to think, oh, God is after me again. We don't, when we go to prayer, we say, God, will you help me with this? And we can expect that the God who loves us to death and life again wants our best. And when we go driving to the church and have to drive all the way back, we can expect that the God who loves us to death and back to life again is looking for our best. And so in all of these things, we have confidence in the peace that God has given to us. It's brilliant. It's an amazing faith journey as we get to see more and more of our God. Lastly, peace with God means a foundational peace with one another in Christ. If we have peace with God, we have a confidence in his love. And if he has accepted us and if he is molding us into his image as his children, He's getting rid of our sin and replacing it with wholeness and peace and righteousness. If that's the case, then when we relate to one another, how can we not have confidence? How can we not say, yes, I'm a sinner. So are you. I'm confident in that fact. So as we share our sins together, I don't condemn you. You don't condemn me. We just press one another towards the cross and resurrection. We say, oh, Wouldn't it be better if we were free from that? And I'm confident that the God who loves us will set you free. We are just co-laborers as Christians in this walk of faith. So why not be transparent? Why not share our sins? Why not be open with one another? If we truly believe that we are sinners that were at war with God but have now been justified by his grace, free gift, why aren't we gracious towards one another the same way? Why can't we be accepted in one another in the same way? And I'm confident that we are in our relationships here more and more every day. I'm thankful for that, and I'm praying that we will do it all the more in the days ahead so that when people come in to Redeemer Church, they will feel the presence of the God who chased us down as we go and chase down our guests, our friends, our family, one another, with the same love that pursued us. In the end, 
the peace of God makes all the difference to us. Not only do we have greater love for one another, greater ability to relate to one another, the, the masks can be taken off, but on that day, when we come back to that final day, that day of wrath for many, we'll end where we began. What do we have to be afraid of? Why are we not more terrified? <laughs> we are hiding under the wings of the God who has loved us. His resurrection secures our life with God forever. We are justified, we are made clean, we are made righteous in his sight through faith. So there's nothing to fear. And as we come to him in that gigantic trembling presence on that last day, at the final judgment, and we know that we have carried sins through our lives, we've faltered in our faith, but we see him and we remember as we look at his nail-scarred hands what he has done for us on the cross to get rid of those sins. And as we remember how he has counted us righteous with the very righteousness of God and declared us righteous in his resurrection, we don't have to hide from his face. We can look him full on in love and know that we are accepted in Christ who died for us and came back to life to defeat death, to defeat our sin, to defeat our dead relationship with God, to bring us into a living, thriving relationship with the living God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have done these things for us. As we contemplate your cross, when we see our sin there, as we see our punishment, thank you that you did not leave us to suffer. But for all who would believe, you have given us life with you. Father, I pray for any who have not trusted you, whose lives are not being changed by your grace from day to day. I pray that if any are here who do not know you this way, Lord, that you would chase them down and that you would bring them to yourself in faith. Spark faith in their hearts. Help them to trust you. And Lord, draw them in, accept them, and never let them go because of your cross and resurrection. Father, we have no hope. And I pray all of us will be broken of every last glimmer of hope that we have in ourselves. And instead, we will take our eyes away from us and lift them to you and be made whole forever. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.